Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. To learn more about our leadership development and team building, visit iFlyVirginiaBeach.com. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to my previous podcast, you will know that I love to have discussions. These aren't interviews. It's not like questions one through nine. I love to have discussions with people who bring great value to me and my organization because of their experienced leadership. And these are people who I know will bring great value to you and your organization. Today is uh, Marty Strong Part Two. Marty was on about a year or so ago, and we talked about his book, Be Nimble, I'm just going to show his book here real quick if I, if I get to the video release. Marty's first book was Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in the Boardroom. Super cool book. Um, I read it. I referenced it a lot. And Marty's background and my background are very similar. So it was just so easy for me to relate to that book. But beyond our similarities, I think, it's, I think Be Nimble is a great book for anybody who wants to lead, who's an emerging leader, who's a current leader. Uh, who faces struggles as all leaders do. But we're not here to talk about Marty's last book. We're here to talk about Marty's current book, Be Visionary, which I have right behind me. Marty's current book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Now, regarding Marty's bio, I'm going to read the short version because in my previous episode, you can hear the longer full bio and hear the, you know, the executive profile and all that. But the bottom line is uh, Marty Strong is quite an accomplished person. Currently, he's an author, he's a consultant, he's a CEO, and as I alluded to, he's a retired Navy SEAL, a man with experience in the military that he transferred or transitioned to the private sector and just had incredible success. Somebody who I try to emulate in my business model and my business career And as I said, somebody who is going to bring great value to you, the listener. The last episode with Marty, I called it a masterclass on leadership. And as we were having the discussion, that's what popped into my head. This is a masterclass on leadership. Marty Strong, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership Podcast Part 2. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good, Bob. Thanks for having me again. You know, just like Be Nimble, as I'm reading Be Visionary, 
the connection between what you experienced and what I experienced past and present and what I'm thinking about doing in the future because your book kind of outlines how people can address things in the future and be visionary. Again, I just felt such connectivity without all the complications of a graduate course at a university. You know, I think the book is just written for people who just want to get it done. And that's one of the things I appreciate about it. Okay. First question coming to you. Why write Be Visionary? I think the, uh, the initial impetus was one of my friends who's a CEO who was a a beta reader, somebody that test reads your chapters as you're writing a book for Be Nimble, made a point in an email to me that one of the chapters that touched on strategy development and the role of strategy in businesses, that this could be its own book. Your insights could actually be converted into an entire discussion, you know, soup to nuts. How do you take a crazy idea, you know, and convert it into something that's actionable that somebody will actually throw resources behind and, and then hopefully can be accomplished and, and be successful. So I didn't start being able thinking there was going to be a secondary companion book. There was no intent in design to have one be like the, you know, a one-two punch of, of my thought process. It really did come out of that email. And in my own uh, role as CEO, I'm dealing with, you know, with banks and investors. And, and I started running into this, this paradigm. And when I researched, I realized it's been around for about 15 years, especially in publicly traded companies. Assume it's also been prevalent in privately held companies that immediate gratification for shareholder value or immediate gratification for investor value has created this shortening and shortening and shortening of investment horizons and expectations to where the subtitle of the book, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, optimization has started to take the place of strategic thinking. Optimization has started to take the place of strategic thinking. Can you give some examples? Sure. I think if you put a bunch of managers, almost any industry right now into a room and ask to show of hands, how many people can explain what a KPI is, a key performance indicator, everybody would raise their hands. KPIs came into, I guess, into become all the rage, whatever, about five or six years ago. And it's now kind of the way companies are managing themselves. It's a set of milestones and deliverables and metrics associated with them that are very finite. They're very granular and they're very short. I'll say short-sighted because that's my point of view. But they're very short range. They're not, they don't look out to the horizon. They don't look up over the hedgerow to see what's over there. So if I did the same, if I had the same crowd and I said, I want somebody to define the strategy in their company or how many people have actually read the strategy in their company or how many people know the vision of their company organization, even you get a smattering of hands, maybe because it's not, and it's not a trick question. In my experience, both as a CEO and working with other CEOs and C-level leaders, there's a deficit of visionary understanding or expectation in organizations. You know, the vision is, that's kind of the hollow conceptual idea, you know, of, of what could be possible, what might be possible. A strategy is actually defining that vision in a more, more palatable terms, more business-like terms. It doesn't have to be lengthy. It doesn't have to have just dollar metrics as a target. And then I talk in the book about how do you get to that point once you've figured out how to convert strategy, excuse me, a vision into a strategy. So it's a short, it's a shortcoming in organizations right now. It's uh, written about a lot, especially in uh, publicly traded companies. And the downside of this trend, besides organizations being somewhat blinded to the long-term uh, threats and opportunities, the other side effect is a lack of investment. You don't invest in the future if you're never looking towards the future. You invest in trying to harmonize and optimize the current systems and processes and people 
because you're being held accountable to KPIs that are only 10 days out, one quarter out, et cetera. Or they look backwards. You know, uh, there's a very large organization that I'm associated with and they the KPIs are last week, last 10 days, last quarter, and a nice dashboard set up and everything. And these KPIs, they all display as a win. But in one case, you know, I saw this company really going in the wrong direction. It's, it's been accelerated, in my opinion, by the access to technology that allows the granularity of investigation into the past. It makes it kind of a hyper and very efficient exercise to go out and find out what did you do last month, last week, last year. And then you get into the accounting maneuver of let's compare, you know, July of last year to July of this year, same store against, you know, same store. And what happens is that's great if the world's static. That's great if your organization is static. That's great if your your competitors are just sitting there doing nothing. But in a dynamic world, and that's pretty much what we've been in for quite a while, you know, the pandemic made it even more dynamic. Comparing what you were like last year to what you are now, if you're the same, that should be an alarm bell. And if it's only a marginal incremental improvement, that should be an alarm bell. You need to be evolving, changing, adapting, adjusting to the current conditions and the expected conditions in the short term and eventually the conditions you think you may run into in a longer term. If you're not refreshing and redesigning and rethinking your organization on a regular basis, all these other exercises about optimization and KPIs and metrics identification and comparisons, all that, they're not going to, they're not going to save you. Yeah. Market dynamics are changing every single day, no doubt about it. And, you know, in my industry last year was, was a sugar high. And when it was happening, in other words, last year was an incredible year. And as it was happening, we just all felt that it was a sugar high and it was COVID and stimulus and pent up demand and, you know, all these other things, but you're right. You, you can't get stuck on, on year on year, same store. I, I mean, if that's what you have to work with, that's what you have to work with. But looking ahead is, is where the vision is. Be visionary. You talk about so many cool things in this book, too much for us to hit in this podcast, but I took out the things that I think resonated the most. And I think are really, again, going back to my experience in the military, these are things that made our teams successful. One of the things you have is one of your chapters is confidence, charisma, and humor. In reading that, again, I just thought so spot on, especially the part about humor. But you start that chapter by saying that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it written down or anything, but you start that chapter by saying that confident leaders are fun to be around. I think that's the exact first sentence in that chapter. But can you discuss that a little bit? I think that leadership, which I believe is, is a unique character trait requirement and unique in that it's, it's needed when things are going wrong or when things are in crisis or when things are, are violating or challenging in a serious way, your systems, processes, and the people, talent, whatever you have in place, and you need somebody to step in and rethink, right? That's where leaders really stand up. In our former profession, the whole job was chaos, crisis, life and death consequences. So there's, there's not a, a lull where we're managing bomb disposal or we're managing, you know, taking out a top target as a SEAL. You are going to go in and as you well know, you're going to have this great plan that you've rehearsed with all this great information that, that informed your plan and your rehearsal. And about 60 seconds after you get there, you're going to realize half of it doesn't work anymore. It was either incorrect or it's, it's stale and it's no longer applicable. And so you have to start being creative and think on your feet. That's a leadership requirement of somebody in special operations. It's an absolute requirement. It's a prerequisite because they're not managing anything. The second part of that is, I'm sure you've been in this situation. I know I have. When you look at the person in charge in that moment and they look confident or they have a little bit of a smile on their face, it instantly just resets the bubble. Everybody goes, okay, we're good to go. This guy's this guy's going to do his job and we're all going to do our job and it's all going to work out. 
And that's a constant thing. And it's tested and exercised and practiced in special operations. So good leaders get to be great leaders and mediocre leaders get to be good leaders. And there's a constant push to improve, 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 because you never know when somebody's going to say, get on the plane and, and head out. Right. So we always appreciated confidence. And to your other two points, you know, from my book, I think that charisma helps because sometimes confidence can appear to be arrogance or even being standoffish. Mm-hmm. It's, it's strength. So strength without charisma can be confidence, but strength and confidence with charisma basically is what all the stories about great leaders in history are all about. JFK comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, uh, Robert E. Lee was a strong leader. He wasn't humorous and his charisma in the time that he was uh, in his time, his charisma was his, his stately poised state of mind and, and physical presence, the way he held himself when everything else was falling apart. That was considered charisma in those days. That was considered you were exuding leadership and it was reaching out to everybody and it calmed everybody down. Mm-hmm. So in the special operations community, and I think in business too, all three of those things should be goals if you're a leader. You, you have to be confident. And one way of doing that is to refine and understand your own shortcomings and your strengths. Daily. Re- reinforce your strengths and correct your shortcomings, right? You need to understand that people are watching leaders all the time. So charisma is a part of your communications, your style, the way you emanate your confidence. And the last one is the sense of humor, because sometimes things are so bad, but the only thing you can do is just smile and look at everybody and say, okay, let's all get in the room and figure this thing out. And it calms everybody down again. All three factors are kind of traits, I think, of, of great leaders and great visionaries. I totally agree. And that's been my experience. And, and again, as, as a leader of 40 people, I have to remind myself of that on a regular basis, um, all of those things. And, and it's easy, you know, for things to get out of control sometimes or to be moving in that direction. And it's amazing how you can really, you know, stop that, that negative cascading effect, um, whatever it is, by being confident in exuding this, uh, this sense of calm. You know, that sense of confidence will also bring a sense of calm in my experience. I want to go back and, and just kind of uh, provide some color on a couple of things. So you said information, you know, we're acting on information. The information may have changed. And one of the things I loved about uh, intelligence collection in the military or, you know, not we act on intelligence, we, we collect it, but we also act on the refined products. You know, we say if it's 20 minutes old, it's outdated. You know, that's an environment. That's something I remind myself of all the time. I was a product of mission planning, education, training, where they fed you the data and they mess with you sometimes, you know, that, you know, and training and exercise, they change this, they change that. But in actual, you know, combat environments, I've been told this is what the tides are going to do. This is when they're going to change. Here's a, I call it a a beer party map. Like when I was a kid in Nebraska, you get this map to some farm in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Um, I got a beer party map from an informant. And this is where this high value target person is. And you're going to go in and through the swamp and it'll be good to go. And we get dropped off. And 20 feet after we get dropped off on a patrol boat, we're in three feet of water with about four feet of mud underneath it. And we're 200 yards from the shoreline. And we spend the next three and a half hours trying to manhandle boats and engines and everything. And the swamp has drained. And now we're actually in this big mangrove thing. And the map's wrong. Everything. 11 hours of nonstop. Nothing is working out. Nothing's right. So I've been in really bad (laughs) recalculate everything scenarios and the thing about being a leader and exuding all those, those elements, and I've had to remind my subordinate leaders, I've had to remind a president of a billion-dollar company one time and myself, as I was passing through the population, I would start to get rumors that something's wrong. Yeah, And 
think people think you're concerned about something is going wrong. Because as I was walking through, I was thinking. I was not thinking about people looking at me thinking. I was just thinking, trying to get from point A to point B. And I had a serious look on my face because I was problem solving. I had no idea that I was on stage. And then I had to be reminded. And then I had a person I reported to as a president of that billion dollar company. I started hearing rumors about him. I went in and told him the same thing. Man, you're walking around, you know, like, like your dog just died and everybody thinks there's something wrong. So it's, it's kind of like if the pilot comes back into the cabin and wipes a bunch of nervous sweat off his brow, shakes his head, goes, oh, and walks back into the cabin. I mean, damage is done. You know, that's a, that's a great story. And that's true. And, that, you know, like you said, people are watching all the time and you want to exude confidence and charisma all the time. And you have to be conscious of that. I love your story. I'll just share a quick one. I had a uh, young guy on my team and I fly Virginia Beach. I'm walking across the flight deck and it's the same thing. I was something on my mind to use your words. I was problem solving. Apparently I was looking right at this young man. His name is Nate. I didn't even know Nate was working that day. Right. So anyway, I just kept going, doing what I did. Well, Nate went to his supervisor and he said, why is Bob mad at me? (laughs) So his supervisor, Ray comes up to my office. a half an hour later. He's like, you know, what's, uh, what's going on with Nate? How come you're mad at him? And so we had to have that whole discussion, you know, and I was like, is Nate even here today? I mean, I, that my, uh, my bad, my bad on, in but, that case. But it goes to the, the point that as a leader, everybody's looking to you for inspiration. They want to emulate your, your behaviors. Hopefully they're positive. So if you're never looking at the future, you're never thinking about the vision of the company. You're never looking at the threats on the horizon or the opportunities. If you're never doing that, your organization will emulate you. Your leaders will emulate you. Their direct reports will emulate those leaders. You, you actually create a culture of short-sightedness by behaving the way you do, or you create a culture of people that are constantly thinking about the art of the possible because of the way you behave. Yeah, the art of the possible. I love that. So true. One other, one other thing, and I'm not exactly sure what your words were, but what it cued me for is uh, good leaders they develop good teammates, or you said something along those lines. And if a really good leader develops really good teammates, ultimately those good teammates become good leaders themselves. And that's the full circle that leaders have to keep in mind with that charismatic approach, with that confidence, and with the ability to walk across that room and and not project anything potentially negative. I want to move on to the next section that really just, something that just resonated And that's the three levels of management. And, you know, you and I have had these discussions and my book is at the publisher and I have really discovered in my private sector life, the relationship between the three levels of management in the military and in business. For me, there's, there's very little difference other than things aren't exploding. You know, you're not getting shot at literally and shooting back literally, but can you break down your three levels of management? Sure. The, the classic military breakout, I'd say classic sense probably the late 1800s when the Prussians started to codify how to organize armed forces and the staff structures and all that are strategic at the top, operational, and then tactical. In the book, I say tactical slash technical, because in our world, technical expertise is kind of where the rubber meets the road. And back in our military comparison, that's the, that's the same thing. You know, tactical is, is what do you do for the next couple of steps? And does your radio man know how to use his radio? Does does everybody know how to do their job? And operational is both running the tactical operations as planned or doing corrective actions or doing changes if the conditions change. It's also bigger picture campaign planning. 
it should be anyway, you know, what's the next big thing? What's the next push? And the operational level of management should be always addressing that. Nowadays in, in various companies, you're looking at you know, is your supply chain secure? Is your raw material supply sources, is that secure? These are all longer vision issues. They're not necessarily visionary, visionary, but- Elon Musk with uh, battery materials for Tesla. Exactly. Yeah. And when I, I walk through this with some of my people, I talk on this subject, I use this, this thing about a, a, a tire company and I start with a rubber tree plant in Malaysia. And I start tracing the raw material of that rubber tree all the way till it comes in the, the front door of the factory all the way through the factory, and then it gets kicked out, and then it's distributed to the eventual buyer of those tires. And then when I do that, I ask, so what would happen if the rubber trees had a blight in Malaysia and half of them died? What are the ramifications? Cost would go up, supply would go down. What would happen if there was a maritime shipping disturbance and all that raw material that's sitting in the docks in Malaysia never gets across the ocean to LA, never gets on a train to go to Detroit. You know, that kind of thing. We, we kind of had that happen here in the last last year, you that's know, exactly. just with a, a shipping disruption. Exactly right. So that that's the op in business anyway, that's the operational layer of responsibility. And as you can see, there's some foresight required. You still have to, it's not necessarily big vision, but you can't be thinking about next week. You have to constantly be doing contingency planning and thinking about you know, what if this, what if that, you have to look at your whole chain of events for all your different supplies, products. If you're a staffing company, you know, the pool of labor, we've got a healthcare company, are there more or less nurses coming out of nursing school? Are there more or less doctors coming out of resident, into residency or out of residency? Is there, or is it drying up at the source? Is there something we can do to uh, impact that? Can we bring in people from other countries? Can we bring in people from other states? That's operational. So everything I just mentioned is still about looking ahead, not just looking down at the tips of your toes. And then, of course, strategic, which we started talking about and at the point of be visionary, which is really to make sure at the leadership level of responsibility, to make sure your operational management team is doing all those things I just mentioned. Your operational team is supposed to make sure that all the tactical and technical people are doing what they're supposed to be doing at their level. So they all work in concert. You can't have one without the other. Optimized, focused organizations tend to kind of dissipate the value of the strategic level and and focus not so much on the future look of operational planning and management. They kind of take the lower half. Let's just measure and guide and direct the tactical technical level. And that's only half the job at, at that level. So yeah, they all work in concert. They're all critical and they're all, um, they all have their place. So the way I describe tactical in the private sector, and in my case, it's, it's your customer facing employees who deliver the product or service. You know, you, you said technical, technical. I say the, the folks who deliver the product or service is your frontline troops, you know, your, your frontline forces, if you will. And then the other thing that many things, many discoveries, but one of the other things I discovered is, and I'm sure you know this, the operational, like in Elevate Your Leadership, when I talk about these three levels of warfare overlaid against the three levels of business, overlaid against Collins' five levels of leadership, you could draw a a circle around the operational tactical, and then another circle around the operational strategic meaning that the operational level bridges up to strategic and down to tactical. At that operational level is, you know, for private sector, we'll call it our vice presidents and our, our managers, if you will. But that's the epicenter for me. That's the critical node. Um, that has to do its job in a highly functional way. Otherwise, the strategic isn't well-informed and the tactical may not be well 
man trained or equipped. You know, it's the operationals level to uh, to execute all that. Right. That that connection between the three is also referred to as organizational structural coherence. Yeah. So you you evaluate an organization that has a strategy that's heading you know 275 degrees to the west, and the operational group is focused at 360 degrees straight north. And the technical tactical level is doing what they were doing five years ago without any guidance directionally one way or the other. That's an incoherent alignment. So, you know, a lot of what I do, I mean, obviously got experience at the lower two levels, but where my value sense to, tends to be, I guess, a differentiation is trying to either look at something and see if I can assess if it's incoherent and then whether I can align the operational and strategic. And oftentimes there, there isn't a strategic to align with. And so then True. I have to work with work with somebody, even in my own organization. With uh, I'm I'm on a board of a group called Best Robotics, which is a charitable organization been around for 30 years. Looking at the strategy, shaping it, fleshing it out, you know, maybe refreshing it so that there's something to align to for the operational level. So if it doesn't doesn't exist, you got to kind of start there, and then you got to kind of work your way down so it all falls into play. Here's the thing that a lot of companies don't understand: even if you have a strategy and you have, it's all coherent. If your strategy is just something you put on a shelf, it's not a way of thinking. It's not a mindset or a, a state of mind where you're constantly evaluating, questioning, looking out for threats and opportunities. You can have a perfectly aligned uh, system that's heading right off the cliff mm-hmm. because you don't know you're heading off a cliff because you never actually tested what's out there. It's like a canoe going towards the falls. You know, everything's great. The, the plan's great. Canoe's floating. We're paddling. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's and funny. You, and you never look beyond the fold in the map. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that organizational architecture is another way to describe that. And one of the, you know, one other component of that that I think is critically important is everybody needs to know everybody's role within that architecture, right? The, the tactical, they have to know the role of the operational. The operational have to know the role of the strategic and, and, and on down. The more everybody understands that, the better that machinery moves forward. Seeing opportunities. This is such a great discussion to have. And it's, you know, there's probably books out there called seeing opportunities or creating opportunities. And the way I like to approach it is, is that opportunity there and I was able to see it or was that opportunity not there and I was able to create it? Can you kind of tell us your thoughts on seeing opportunities? So in the book and when I talk, I always talk about threats and opportunities on the horizon. That's what you're looking for. I think I mentioned in the book, that the easier thing for everybody to find instinctively is the threat. So if they do look out there, they can recognize a threat. It's pretty clear. I mean, threats are definable and they're, they're kind of in your face. And, and the consequences related to the threats that you see on the horizon are fairly well known. You know, a competitor is completely coming up with a different product that's going to put you out of business. The U.S. government is going to change the law so you can't do your global business anymore the way you did. You're going to lose, you're going to lose your shirt. Can't buy AK-47 rounds uh, from foreign suppliers anymore. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to educate uh, a, a leader who sees that. They get it instantly. Then they're energized. It's the opportunity side. It's the seeing the opportunity. We don't teach people to define and to shape and to craft and to understand what an opportunity is. Most of the people in the world, like the Elon Musks and, and uh, Steve Jobs, they jump through those windows on instinct. That window of opportunity, and, it, and those opportunities open and close fairly quickly. Elon and Twitter. Yeah, I mean, you got you to you make the move. So yes, there's risk in, in jumping and seizing, jumping through the window, seizing the opportunity. But the other thing is, you know, there are people that are practicing this. And I think this is something that's learnable. I think if you learn 
by thinking every day for about 20 minutes about the art of the possible, what's out there in the future, your mind starts to open up and starts to get tuned into what could be an opportunity, how to develop an opportunity. So I'll give you an example. If you walk out and you see an acre of land and there's corn ready to be harvested, you see the opportunity because the corn's right there. Everything's done for you, right? You, the opportunity is clear. If I buy this acre, I'm going to yield all this corn. But what if you go out there and you see an acre of woods? If you're an enlightened farmer, what you see is someday a field with corn ready to be harvested. See, that's the difference. That's why land developers that are really good, they look and they see things. They look at the envelope of growth in cities. They say, okay, that's going to be this. That's going to be this. This is going to be this. This is where the civil engineer is going to have to come in and do this. The roads are going to have to expand and improve this way. So you, you can either be limited by having, it's got to be a quack like a duck, clear as, clear as day kind of opportunity awareness, or you have to develop an understanding so that you can start to become that second kind of visionary who could also see the cornfield for the trees, essentially. It, I think it's something going to be de developed also. You just have to get into the mindset and start doing it as a habit. It is a mindset. You know, the opportunity could be there and because of your background, you can see it or the opportunity might not be there, but you have figured out a way to create it. It, it could be the same thing, you know, depending on how you view it and how you say it. I, I just, I know from my personal experience, there was an opportunity that everybody saw with I Fly Virginia Beach indoor skydiving and people before me tried to execute on it. You know, so clearly the opportunity was out there uh, visible to a lot of people. And, and fortunately, I was able to find a way to execute on it. So creating and developing opportunities. When I speak to uh, the junior achievement and some of the some of the uh, child entrepreneur organizations, that's a big part of the discussion, being able to see those opportunities. OK, we are going to take a quick break for capitalism. Marty and I are both great capitalists and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. I'm talking to Marty Strong, author, CEO, business leader, consultant, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, and uh, somebody who just has had great success through, through discipline and hard work. There's really no other way to put that. I think Marty is somebody, knowing Marty the way I do in his background, he's somebody who recognizes when an opportunity is present, he recognizes the hard work that needs to be put in or needs to be cultivated to develop that opportunity. All right, Marty, in your book, we talk about failure or we, you talk about failure and disappointment and resets. And certainly that is part of the entrepreneurial cycle, the business cycle, if you will. But can you just kind of tell us how you link those three things together? Human psychology, everybody knows that failing sucks. Nobody wants to fail at any level. You know, we talked about the three levels. Nobody at any level wants, wants to fail. And yet failure is a part of nature. It's a part of the universe's you know, grand design. It's experimentation. It's ad adaptation. It's evolution. And that's the same with individuals. That's the same with companies. And it's the same with markets and industries, et cetera. So if you made wagon wheels and 
you made the greatest wagon wheels in the world. And suddenly your wagon wheel sales started to drop off radically because somebody named Ford started creating cars. You could say it's failure in your business because you're not making as much money or you may go under, but you have to learn how to face that failure and figure out how do you turn it around? Do you just close up shop or do you go to Henry Ford and say, who's making your wheels? Mm -hmm. So for every failure, the flip side of that experience is usually an opportunity. And I think failure, and I'm not the person that coined this kind of approach, it's out there everywhere, but failure is the way you learn. It's the way nature is designed to learn. If you're willing to learn, if you believe failure is uh, a devastating emotional event for you and you want to react to it that way and you just want to sit down, shut down, that's your decision and that's your choice. But that's that's not the only choice you have. So I think it's important for leaders, entrepreneurs, business owners to take that to heart and not see every failure as an emotional event. See every failure as an opportunity to learn, to improve, to grow. I use the metaphor you know, of a uh, professional fighter. Professional fighters spar. They spar so that their coaches can show them what their strengths and weaknesses are. When you spar with somebody who's faster than you, that shows that you're, you, you have a failure to, to stop their attack. You learn how to stop their attack because you accept that you have a failure because you're slow or you don't have the right skills. The coach gives you those skills and eventually you get to the point where you rarely fail and then you go into a real fight. And then you learn a whole new series of lessons because if everybody has optimized and corrected all their issues, they step in the ring, you have two optimized and somebody's going to win. So there's another opportunity to fail and to learn from that failure. Even if you win, if you don't win the way you thought you were, you barely won, you should walk away and your coach should walk away with a whole list of things we got to work on, right? So that's the same paradigm for businesses, business leaders, whether organizationally, division department, individuals, you have to be comfortable with the concept of failure as a positive, not a negative. And the other thing, you know, regarding a reset, sometimes failure is more than just a momentary setback or just getting punched in the nose. You know, it's sometimes it's, it's a significant event. Obviously through the pandemic, there were a lot of companies that were completely knocked on their heels and a lot of restaurants, for example, completely shut down and never opened again. So the reset concept is, do we need to look at the level of failure and do we need to have a kind of a level set restart of what we are, who we should be, where we're going, how big we should be, how much territory we should try to bite off and get to ourselves so we're right-sized and both psychologically and physically and fiscally to deal with the reality that the failure has presented to us and then start to move forward again under the new plan. So I think resets are good for individuals. I think when you're humbled by something that requires and justifies a, a personal reset, if you take a hit as a leader in a business or owner of a, of a business, that's also justifies a moment of humility to sit down and, and take stock of what happened, why did it happen, and how am I going to keep that from happening again? But I always say these things can be taken emotionally and negatively, or they can be taken positively and professionally. And I obviously steer towards the second option. For sure. And that's, again, a hallmark of a, of a good leader. You know, again, even in times of crisis, if you will, having that confidence to reset, to take that failure and, and retool the plan and drive forward. You know, these are, these are not, it's another reason I, I, I like your book so much. These are not complex or complicated theories. Like General Mattis said, be brilliant at the basics. These are the things that leaders should be looking at and thinking about um, on a daily basis, regardless of the, or, the organization, the size of the organization. I, I just think that 
you really point those things out in a way that is relatable to anybody and everybody who's in a leadership position. Be strategic. You end your book with, or one of the last chapters was Be Strategic. And when I read that, I thought, ah, there's the next book title. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have an idea for my, my third book, but it's, it's not that. You were just touching on things. And, and Be Nimble, one of the reasons why I thought it was worth writing, and I noted in the, in the beginning of Be Nimble, there's very little education about entrepreneurial leadership. And entrepreneurial leadership happens in huge corporations, 85,000 employees. Somewhere there's a department or a division or a team that's at the level of entrepreneurial thinking and engagement. It's everywhere, yet almost nobody trains to it. Nobody teaches it in business schools. It's the same thing for the, the topic of be visionary, the idea of converting, first off, of, of cultivating a leadership culture first and then a complete organizational culture of open-minded exploration and thinking about the future. It doesn't have to be the CEO that becomes a visionary in their mindset. For it sure. should be something you can push all the way down to somebody who's loading you know, something into a truck on a dock. Yeah, newest because, person on the team. Yeah, if they understand the overall purpose of the company, and NASA, the NASA experience with the Apollo program is a really great example. In 1963 forward, everybody at NASA knew what the vision was. The vision was put a man on the moon at the end of the decade, full stop. You could ask anybody at NASA. Heck, you could ask most of the people in the United States because they all heard the John F. Kennedy speech, but NASA knew their vision. And anything that could improve getting a man on the moon at the end of the decade was contribution at any level from any source. So I think you need to create all those capabilities. And then maybe the whole organization becomes both visionary and strategic in its outlook, which makes it, I hate to say this, it makes it agile and nimble. Because if it's always looking for the landmines, it knows when to step left or right. You have to have that kind of, you know, that kind of antenna operating. Everybody, everybody switched on. You know, if you do a combat patrol, you don't have a point man that's out there moving like a ninja. And then the, the next 10 guys behind him are just walking along, you know, shooting, smoking. Making noise, yeah. You know, eating, eating, <laughs> eating a bag of chips. <laughs> yeah. You know, and talk, everybody's, everybody's switched on. Everybody has areas of responsibility that they're scanning. Everybody's listening. If you have 10 people. You know, you have 10 pairs of eyes, 10 pairs of, of ears. Everybody's absorbing and, and appreciating the environment. First, you know, right in front of you, around you, and then kind of in, in rings outward. And that makes you 10 times more powerful than just the point man up front being responsible for all alerts and, and finding all threats. So mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big cultural task to try to get in a whole organization to do all the things I just laid out. I think it's a worthy objective, but it starts from the top down. It's very difficult to have a culture from the bottom up. You know, I, I would say in my experience, and I write about this too, the culture is enabled from the top down. The conditions for great culture can be enabled or set or otherwise put in motion by the leadership, but the bottom up, you know, the culture is, is realized, I guess, from the bottom up. And I can't go to somebody who doesn't think we have good culture and say, we have great culture. What are you talking about? You know, if that person is having an issue, then it's real. It's enabled from the top down. My friend Bob Groves says this uh, good, good culture is enabled from the, from the top down and it's realized from the bottom up. Marty, have I left anything out? Is there anything I should have asked you other than the title of your next book, which I'm going to ask you again? <laughs> No, I think you've, you've covered it. I do want to congratulate you on your, your new book. I think that's pretty exciting. I can't wait to read it. 
You're going to get it before you know it. You're going to get it sooner than you think. (laughs) A great, great cover. And I know you've been working hard for quite a while to make sure it's the message you want to send and and the story you want to tell. And I think that's great. Congratulations. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, it's been quite a learning process. Like, you know, like, like anything we do, you were an instructor at Buzz. I was an instructor at Navy Dive School. And, you know, when I left that tour, I thought, man, I, I learned a lot more than I taught over the last three years. And writing a book is kind of like that as well. All right, Marty Strong, first book, Be Nimble. Go back and listen to that episode, folks. Like I said, it is a masterclass on leadership, one that's written for everybody. And then the book we talked about now, Be Visionary, it's just part two of a masterclass, incredible reads. Marty, thank you so much for coming on once again to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com, Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com, and connect with him on LinkedIn.